Welcome to The Drill Down, the business stories behind Stocks on the Move. I'm Corey Johnson, and today is Thursday, March 6. Well, just ahead, we'll look at Etsy and imagine a world without masks. And Moderna turning a profit and warning about generics. And we'll focus on SPACs and investing in emerging technologies with Niccolo Damasi. He's the CEO of DMY Technologies, and he's quickly becoming the SPAC king. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. Era's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's era.com. And you can listen to The Drill Down on any of your favorite podcast platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn. Oh my God, I'm out of breath. We're everywhere, but hit that subscribe button and catch every show. And remember to join The Drill Down on Twitter and Instagram at DrillDownPod. Link up with us on LinkedIn and check out our website, bizpod.net. And let us know what companies you want us to talk about. All right, I'm Corey Johnson, and welcome to The Drill Down, where we dig deep and explain the big ideas driving business. Ben Wilson, our editor extraordinaire, is here as well. Thanks, Corey. All right, what are the most important stories in the world of business today? All right, Ben, I've got three for you today. Okay, we're going to start with the market a market overview, I guess. I mean, the markets were kind of boring today. The S&P, the Dow, the NASDAQ, all up about 1%, a little less than that. But it is all-time record territory. And indeed, for the year, uh, let's look at the S&P, up about 11.7% already for the year. I mean, 12% is usually a pretty good year. We've got that in its early May. Now, story number two. There was a, a brief but sudden drop in the world of cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin, Ether, XRP all fell about 2% in just a couple of minutes today after some comments from the new SEC chairman, Gary Gensler. Now, he was asked in congressional testimony, which, of course, this being 2021, was doing over Zoom, but he was asked in his testimony about regulating crypto, about SEC oversight into crypto. Now, Gensler basically said he couldn't do much, except as it regulates uh, securities. But he did say that more regulation could be needed in the world of crypto. Here's exactly what he said. I do think that working with Congress, and I think it's only Congress that could really address it, It'd be good to consider, if asked my thoughts, to consider whether to bring greater investor protection to the crypto exchanges. So that was pretty clear what he was talking about there was the exchanges uh, when it comes to the additional authority that uh, he thinks the SEC should have. Now, Corey, isn't the SEC suing the crypto company you used to work for? Yes, in full disclosure, there was a lawsuit filed uh, some time after I left uh, Ripple uh, that does pose the question as to whether the cryptocurrency XRP is a security. Um, I, I strongly believe that it is not. But regardless, Gensler said nothing specifically about that. But he did say that crypto enforcement that relates to security enforcement is still under SEC jurisdiction. All right, then story number three in the world of business today and the world everyone's talking about, the divorce of Bill and Melinda Gates. Since the divorce was announced, there's actually been a lot of business activity. The holding company uh, that has run the Gates family money, Cascade Investment, has transferred more than $2 billion in shares uh, 
uh, from a handful of those companies that Cascade uh, has ownership of uh, to Melinda Gates herself. Now, that massive wealth transfer um, is expected uh, from the separation is probably something the world's never really seen before. Uh, the Gates family has an estimated $144 billion, and uh, she might stay invested in those companies when she controls those shares, but she might dump a lot of it. Definitely gives new meaning to the old divorce phrase, it's cheaper to keep her. Now, Corey, what's your first drill down? Let's look at Moderna. This trades under the ticker MRNA. Of course, Moderna, the maker of the vaccines, uh, uh, one of the most successful vaccines fighting COVID uh, and fantastic development that they did to do that. Well, they announced earnings this morning. Shares fell about 2% on Thursday, but are up 227% from a year ago. Now, they announced a quarter in which they had terrific earnings, about $2 billion in sales of COVID vaccine, which is really their principal product. But uh, this comes on the heels of some uh, kind of giant announcements uh, from the U.S. government saying that they might support a global um, change of the rules by which Moderna and other drug makers are governed, which is to say they would not be allowed to keep their patents for these vaccines, and they would have to basically give away the IP. That was of uh, great concern. Now, um, if you didn't know the story that well, but if you do the work and actually look at this company, what you find out is Moderna had already said they would not enforce that IP. They wouldn't uh, let anyone that wants to make Moderna's uh, COVID vaccine, they would let them gladly do it. They wouldn't enforce any IP infringement on their intellectual property around the disease, around the, the vaccine, I should say. But Interestingly, uh, the CEO of Moderna said he's not really worried about generic vaccines because these mRNA vaccines are so damn difficult to make. Uh, they talked about uh, how much work they did for years in hiring every possible person who could help them develop these disease. They don't think there are a lot of people out there who could design more vaccines and test the vaccines. And so generics using Moderna's intellectual property probably can't even get created. Here is the very French Moderna CEO, Stéphane Bassel. So on the IP, uh, in terms of what does it mean? Uh, I believe it doesn't change anything for Moderna. Uh, as I said, you know, we had said last October that we will not enforce uh, our COVID-19 related patents during the pandemic. Um, and as I said in my remarks, uh, there is no mRNA you know, manufacturing capacity in the world. This is a new technology. Uh, you cannot go hire people who know how to make mRNA. Uh, those people don't exist. Um, and, yes. and then even if all those things were available, whoever who wants to do mRNA vaccines will have to you know, buy the machine, invent the manufacturing process, uh, invent purification processes, analytical processes, and then they will have to go run a clinical trial, get the data, get the product approved, and scale manufacturing. This doesn't happen in six or 12 or 18 months. You know, we have been working at this for years. And as you know, there are some smaller mRNA companies that are still in the clinic trying to uh, get the products to the finish line. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we saw the news last night, and uh, I didn't lose a minute of sleep over the news during the night. So he's sleeping well. Not what you would have expected had you seen those headlines and seen the stocks initially take a little dive down. Now, Corey, what's your next drill down? I want to look at Lee Enterprises. It used to be called Lee Newspapers Company. I followed for a long time and trades under the ticker L-E-E. -E. 
Shares fell over 14% Thursday, but have risen over 300% over the past 12 months. Yeah, um, and I feel that one painfully because I owned this stock when it was in the toilet for a while, uh, and it just never seemed to do anything. This company was just a serial loser of revenue and money. And these they own local newspapers all over the United States, and they just couldn't seem to get out of their own way. The world of advertising has gone away from newspapers. It's gone away from old media, magazines, billboards. These guys are a newspaper company. It has moved to new media. It has moved to social media. It has moved to podcasts. Please, God, let that be true and continue to be true. But uh, the new media that has taken advertising dollars has been taking it away from the old media of newspapers, and these guys are in that old media newspaper business. Someone who has noticed this, of course, is Warren Buffett, who uh, famously owned the Buffalo newspapers and a handful of other newspapers. He actually sold those newspapers to lean enterprises within the last year. And although he gave up, uh, gave up on newspapers throwing in the towel, Lee is really focused on this business and trying to digitize some of the advertising sales efforts at these newspapers. Uh, and so the big question here is, you know, with Lee and what do we see from Lee, we really can get a look at what's happening with advertising by looking at local newspapers and looking at sort of the weakest link in the world of advertising. Advertising uh, is the canary in the coal mine for the economy. You know, think about it, Ben. I mean, Spending money on ads is usually the first discretionary expense that a company can cut when they're worried about their future. So the question put to the Lee Enterprise CFO is, what are the total advertising trends across the newspaper chain? Here's Tim Millich. What I'd say is our, our total advertising revenue trends are improving significantly since the worst of the pandemic uh, in the third quarter of last year. You know, as a reminder, you know, third quarter trends were down 39% uh, third quarter last year, and we've significantly improved those trends, you know, going through every quarter since then. In, in the, the second quarter of, of this fiscal year, uh, advertising revenue trends were down 16.3%, so showing some significant improvement and getting back to kind of the, the pre-pandemic levels, uh, which we expect to see in the latter half of, uh, of the fiscal year 2021. Now, I've been watching this company for about a decade, and it seems like every single quarter there was less revenues, and and uh, if there were any profits, they were disappearing, and the debt was a nightmare. They actually reported a really good quarter here. Yes, the stock sold off a lot today, but I, uh, generally things have been really improving for Lee, Ever, Lee Enterprises. I want to call them Lee Newspapers, their old name, Lee Enterprises. And also things are just getting better in the world of advertising. All right, Corey, what's your third drill down? I want to look at Etsy, which trades under the ticker Etsy, E-T-S-Y. That makes a lot of sense. Shares dropped 15% Thursday, but have gained 100% in a year. Well, look, Ben, for all of the your opportunities to buy uh, taxidermied squirrels and customized uh, uh, wood-painted signs to hang over your door and cheap jewelry, Etsy's biggest business for the last year has been, indeed the biggest business ever, has been masks. But Ben, you've probably had a, a post-mask liberating moment where you get to go outside and just rip that thing off your face. Has that happened to you yet? It is, uh, it is nice to be able to go outside and go on a hike and not be too worried about that. Well, um, their biggest business selling masks is probably in trouble right now. The mask business brought a lot of people to Etsy, and they bought more than masks. It led to 132% year-over-year increase in the amount of stuff they sold. 
for the first quarter. That's a $3.1 billion this time around. Uh, and their average sales per buyer were up about 20% over the last year. Then they had 16 million new or reactivated buyers who had not purchased in the last year. So people coming to Etsy, maybe they came looking for masks, they bought other stuff. The question is, are they going to stay uh, and or are they going to go now that they don't need masks? And the guidance just wasn't that good. Here's Rachel Glazer, the CFO of Etsy. Our estimate is that government stimulus drove approximately eight percentage points of GMS growth in Q1 2021. GMS we have already seen this benefit wane in April and early May and do not expect government stimulus to similarly impact our business in the second half of this year. Coupled with the, de- the continued decline in mask sales, we also currently expect new buyers to decelerate in 2021, given the record number of new buyers we acquired in 2020. That said, we're encouraged by the progress in frequency and are hyper-focused on delivering a better user experience for all of our buyers. Ben, do you think hyper-focused is more than laser-focused or is it less than laser-focused? I can't Sounds decide. more I than thought- laser-focused to me, but uh, to each their own. So on the scale of focus, we've got focused and laser focused and hyper focused. Well, good for Etsy that they're hyper focused, but yeah, it sounds like without masks and without government stimulus, things are not going to be as great in the near future for Etsy. All right, next up, we're going to look at the world of SPACs and specifically what makes a good SPAC from a bad SPAC. We'll talk to Niccolo Damasi, the CEO of DMY Technologies. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. ERA's event access and monitoring intelligence platform improves earnings season and the investor events in between. Through comprehensive calendar tracking, one-click access, dynamic monitors, multicasting, and more. Powered by an advanced language processing engine which consumes 40,000 investor events annually across 10,000 global equities, and, and it processes the Drill Down transcript every day. Learn more at ERA.com slash drilldown. And remember, you can join the Drill Down on Twitter, Instagram, at Drill Down Pod. Link up with us on LinkedIn and sign up for our newsletter at our website, bizpod.net. Well, joining us right now in the Drill Down is Niccolo Damasi, the CEO of DMY Technologies, a former chairman and CEO of Glue mobile, the video game maker. Maybe more importantly, Nicola's a good friend, a longtime friend of mine, and an investor in the Business Podcast Network, a parent company of The Drill Down. But the reason we want him on the show today is to talk about DMY, which is a company that's created a handful of SPACs already, and talk about this world of special purpose acquisition corporations or SPACs. Nicola, how many have you taken out so far in the last uh, year or year or two? Yeah, so since February 21st, last year, 2020, we've done four IPOs. So we've done DMY 1, 2, 3, 4. DMY 1 and 2 have announced and closed their transactions. Um, DMY 3 has announced their transaction, and we're in the process of uh, getting to the shareholder vote and close. And DMY 4 is uh, is pretty new. We IPO'd it actually just uh, six, eight weeks ago. So we were in the process of, uh, of looking for a company to take public with DMY 4. Now, the, the essence of a SPAC is, is a, you know, we used to call them shell corporations, right, where you would create a publicly traded nothing and then put a real company inside of it so that the shares of that nothing suddenly become shares of that something. And at that moment, you've got a publicly traded vehicle that went public without a traditional kind of IPO. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, the, the I like to say that there's three ways to go public these days. There's uh, an S1 process, which is the traditional IPO we've all been used to. 
There is an S4 process, uh, which is a reverse merger with a blank check company or SPAC. Uh, and of course, there is the direct listing. Um, almost nobody has ever pulled off a direct listing other than, uh, I think, Spotify and Slack. Um, all the other direct listings in the news are actually hybrid direct listings. They still Google, have underwriters. Google, for example, was a famously a hybrid well, uh, one, right? Yeah, reverse, Dutch auction, whatever it was. You know, there's a few of those. And I feel like Unity and Snowflake have done kind of hybrid, I think, direct listings and like partially underwritten offerings with Goldman Sachs. You know, Goldman Sachs is our underwriter for all four of our SPACs. We've raised and deployed about $2 billion. We, we think that uh, we are the premier sponsors in our category and size, which is technology companies kind of in the one to three billion dollar enterprise value where you know most of my career has been as you know um but you know fundamentally the convergence between the s1 and the s4 uh is a continual process with the sec um they're bringing to bear the same scrutiny on the s4 they've had with the s1 um there's no doubt in our mind that these are different mechanisms to achieve the same thing and the key to our success uh, is that we've been treating our SPAC reverse mergers as ipos not as M&A processes, right? Even though the instrument is a hybrid, philosophically, we look at this as an IPO and we work with companies that want to be public, not looking to sell themselves. So talk to me about sort of why these exploded so much in the last, really the last two years. What was it that led to that um, change? Yeah. Well, look, since 2011, there's been slow growth and percolation in the category. Um, believe it or not, after I sold my first public company, in 2007, even before Glue, I looked at doing this back in 07, and the rules were quite different, and the category was small and generally thought of as, you know, only a kind of, frankly, last case scenario, relatively low quality companies that would go public through SPACs pre 2011. Post 2011, oh, when, when I was a short seller back in the day, when I used to run <laughs> a decent sized short fund, we loved these SPACs because they were almost always filled with garbage, and the results to investors right. in stocks usually tanked. Right. And so since 2011, um, rules have changed in terms of the way the shareholder vote has bifurcated a redemption vote on the capital in the trust account of, of the SPAC from a vote on the deal. That has led to slowly but surely improving quality in, in the companies willing to entertain them. But to be honest, what's really driven, you know, my opinion, progress in the last two, three years uh, is Goldman Sachs, <laughs> believe it or not. So, um, and I am biased as they're our underwriter, but Goldman has a completely untainted record of zero redemptions in all of the SPACs they've ever done, just like DMY has zero redemptions. Um, no other underwriter has zero redemptions. Let's and that has led that to is. a- Yeah, so- Sorry For a minute. Well, so when an investor uh, invests in a SPAC, the company uh, lists a SPAC, usually at $10 a share. The investor gives them those $10. And essentially, that's a that's a, a, a loan, right? They can get that money back if they don't like the, the deal that the SPAC decides to take on. Uh, and yep. that's the redemption. That's correct. You can vote to have your money back. And you can also vote for or against the deal. It's two different votes. And so what Goldman worked out you know, with sponsorship, really from the most senior levels a few years ago, is if they if they can improve the quality of the sponsor, and the sponsor is myself and my partner, Harry Yu, uh, who run DMY Technologies together. And my partner, Harry, used to be the CFO of Oracle, Accenture, and EMC, right? So he's done $500 billion market cap companies. He's on the board of Broadcom and, and Coupang. And so, you know, we're both CEOs and CFOs of public companies, and we've been able to attract a very, very much higher quality, different caliber company to work with us. And so when you get higher quality sponsors who can attract higher quality companies, you know, lo and behold, you get higher quality investors. 
<laughs> and so there's a virtuous circle that, that moves up and out uh, to the right, as they say, um, once you get those three things working together. And so Goldman's really driven that quality step change. Everyone else has tended to copy it and follow suit, which has kind of dragged the whole sector up in the last two or three years to where it is today, where, you know, to be fair, um, the quality of companies and the size of companies willing to entertain us back today um, has, has never been seen at such a high level in, in all 40 years that blank shop companies have been around. Now, there's also been some real garbage that's come out. And uh, some of my, as I mentioned, my former short seller friends have been circling this area or come back to circle this area because there have been some companies that are clearly not ready for prime time. Um, and, and you know, there have been we've looked at some companies in the last year that have come with, out with a SPAC and shortly thereafterwards, the CEO moves on or the business strategy right. completely changes and collapses. Right. How can we sort of look for the difference between the companies that have got it together and the ones that don't when we're kind of looking at, is, is it just the notion of what's a speculative name and what's into it? I, I, electric yeah. cars, for example, right. we're seeing real popular specs regardless of their ability to, to create an electric car. No, that's right. I mean, look, um, the SEC is looking at the S4 and the S1 with similar amounts of scrutiny. The, the, key, the key difference between the S1 and the S4 is, of course, in an S1, you can't have any forecasts. Okay, there's a prohibition on forward-looking statements, basically. And S1 um, is what's used in a traditional IPO. Traditional IPO, IPO. yep. And it takes, you know, it takes two years to prepare, Sarbanes-Oxy compliant. You know, the S1 is what I do, by the way, every time I, I have my own blank check IPOs, I've done four S1s, right? I've done four S1 IPOs, and then my merger with the company going public is, is the S4. It's a different but equally high quality proxy document the SEC will scrutinize. Um, you know, the reality is there have been companies, and you're right, the EV battery space, the self-driving car space, probably even the drone space, ha has businesses that are going public that obviously are very much forecasting greatness in the next decade. Um, you know, I think if you add up, Corey, like the kind of joke is like if you add up the sum total of the forecast from the EV, you know, self-driving car, like, I think it's like five times the total addressable market if you add up everyone's forecast. So obviously <laughs> they can't they can't all be winners, right? Um, and so you know I want to be clear that you know there has been the Nikola you know sort of you know catastrophe vis-a-vis -vis, you know, GM's investment. GM did you know did, did some diligence, obviously invested in the business, and then they sort of had the episode of like what was the car being pushed down the, the truck it was being a, pushed it was down a the truck hill that or whatever it was. they were yeah. accused of pushing the truck down the hill <laughs> right. to show right. that to it actually it. could yeah. could drive right. yeah right so like look you know that that sort of behavior is an issue whether or not it's an s1 or an s4 i mean worldcom was an issue enron was an issue and they were s1 ipos right so you know with that level of uh i think you know let's call it uh either aggression vis-a-vis -vis forward-looking statements or you know deceitfulness i'm going to look at it um, you know, can can be an issue regardless of the approach that you take to getting your business public. Um, well, let, me make, no, let me make a suggestion. Yeah. There's a difference, though, because, you know, WorldCom and Enron's uh, ultimate frauds uh, became exposed uh, many, many years after the listings. In the case of WorldCom, maybe a decade after the early initial listings of the company that became WorldCom. In the case of Enron, also, there were many, many years of publicly uh, being traded before it, uh, the fraud sort of uh, uh, encapsulated that entire company or gobbled that company up. But in the case of a, of a SPAC, you've got a, a financial instrument where there's a lot of money to be made at the moment of the IPO, and there's something different here. And, and among the things that happened is a lot of shares get issued right afterwards. 
um, those those share multipliers are seem to be like some of them are they're very different. Some are very big and some are very small. Yeah. So look, um, at the end of the day, investors who participate in a sponsor SPAC or in what's called the pipe instrument, which is additional capital, it's usually raised as part of the announcement and transaction to kind of price the deal. Um, you know, you have discerning investors in both pools. I mean, Fidelity led my pipe on the first and third transaction. Um, you've seen everyone from Capital Research to Wellington to T Row to Franklin. They've all participated in, in both IPOs as SPACs and, and certainly in pipes across the board. Um, so, and, and pipe again. Know, let's, let's let's use the terms right. A pipe is a is a p- private investment in a public equity. Or PIP. Yep, that's right. Okay. Yeah, I mean it's it's, it's basically just a, pipe, gi- a giant chunk of money but, into the private before the IPO happens. Yeah, you're com- it's actually committed capital that funds when the deal is voted through. So if the deal is not voted through, the pipe people are off the hook also. But if the deal is voted through, they have to fund. Okay, um, it really is not much different than than raising money for a traditional IPO, except that you can raise a pipe under NDA, and this is one of the reasons why you don't hear about SPACs failing on the road up to the announcement. Okay, the pipe is raised under NDA. You don't have this two weeks of the S one is out there; it's public. Everyone knows you're trying attempting an IPO. You know, you read about S ones failing all the time. You don't read about SPACs failing up to the announcement. Right. And and this phenomenon is part of it. The pipe fundraise and how it's raised is definitely part of it. Let, let me come with another metaphor on the pipe. Right. So uh, per, the ability of a SPAC, a guppy to swallow a whale of a business is the additional capital. So the SPAC might be a hundred million dollar SPAC and mm-hmm. it wants to buy a billion dollar company. The pipe is the 900 million that comes in on top of the 100 million that came out with the SPAC listing that allows it to become a billion dollar company and acquire a billion dollar company. The pipe money from Fidelity, T. Rowe, Wellington, Cap, or whatever you're t- you know, your, your source of the funds, that pipe money sits on top of the money raised in, with the initial SPAC and that allows the combination of those two dollar amounts to, those, uh, to, to allow that little guppy of the SPAC to swallow the whale of the business it wants to put inside of the SPAC. Yeah, I mean, people used to structure uh, SPAC deals like that. Uh, really, in the, the pre-2011 era, there was a lot of sort of buyouts and I would say poorly sized transactions where you have a $200 million SPAC, you go and buy half of a business or three quarters of a business worth $300 million and you wonder why it doesn't trade well. What what our deals have done, if you look at DMY 1, 2, and 3, is you know we've typically had two to $300 million in our SPAC IPO trust account. We've then raised a pipe on top of that that's somewhere in the 150 to 300 or 350 zone. And so the total capital that we've delivered has been four to $650 million um, on valuations in the range of 1.2 to $1.8 billion. So we're a minority of the, of the business. It really is the same as an IPO where you're probably selling 20, 25% of your business to new public investors. But right. frankly, this is one of the reasons why our deals have traded well, work well, and why, you know, Harry, myself, and DMI Technology are very much focused on being long-term greedy, if you will, uh, and being repeat <laughs> successful and making sure that we're building a franchise. We're not, uh, we're not going for any individual transaction on the economics and so on. So a, a pipe that's kind of strong enough, but not too big and not too small. That's right. That's right. It's all about quality, right? You want people, I mean, look, let's see who was in my pipe in the third transaction. It was like 
Bill Gates's family office, Dell, Michael Dell was there, MSD Capital, Silver Lake was there. You know, we had a bunch of other strategic investors. Well, now investors. that you live in Austin, you can just walk down the street and get a cup of sugar and some money from Michael Dell, right? It, 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 exactly, exactly. It's pretty much how it works on, <laughs> on, on, on at the gate of the driveway. You just sort of push four for coffee with Michael. back for pipe off right <laughs> twice. Um, so, uh, uh, so, so head over to, over to Mike's house right now. He's going to kill me for that one. Um, there's also this issue of how long the window is before the sponsors can get out. And that seems like that's can be really different from deal to deal. Um, and, and we've seen some of that where SPAC sponsors will will dump their shares or at least a lot of their shares shortly after the deal happens. The incentive there um, uh, is not the same as a long-term investor. Yeah, I mean, I'll point out a couple of things. One, pipe investors are generally not locked up at all, okay? So they're usually free to trade when the deal closes or 30 days thereafter when the stock is registered. The IPO investors are not registered at all. And so the, the quality of your investor book really dictates the behavior you see. Um, in DMY Technologies case, we've, we've done seven transactions in the past you know, 15 months in terms of seeing shareholders for pipes and IPOs. And I even did a, you know, a secondary at Glue Mobile last year. So I know that I'm seeing the same shareholders for my size and stage deal that are all kind of Goldman Sachs clients. Um, right. And so I know that the quality of my book is the same, and I can really, I can really demonstrate that to target, you know, companies with a high degree of, uh, of fidelity and confidence. Um, there's no doubt that, like with everything in the world, you know, Corey, there's there's a tiering of SPAC sponsors and underwriters, and hence investors and target companies. So there's, you know, tier one is going to look exactly the same as an S1 process, whether it's an S4 or an S1, and you're going to have someone like Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley as an underwriter, and it'll kind of transition all the way down to firms you've never heard of that are in the sort of tier three and tier four who probably don't have the clout with the investors, aren't gonna have the research coverage, aren't gonna attract a quality target, probably won't structure themselves terribly sustainably. And so, you know, buyer be, you know, caveat emptor, like buyer beware, if you're ever investing in a, in a, in a group that you haven't right. heard of, underwriters you haven't heard of. Let me ask also, um, you know, the deals that you've done. So you've done three deals. And, you know, one of the uh, – I have a friend who's a, a critic of these SPACs and looking for ones that aren't, aren't doing well. And one of the things he said to me was, you know, look for the um, people doing the SPAC without experience in the industry that they're doing right. it with, which makes perfect right. sense. You want to have domain expertise. Um, right. You have done a lot of different stuff in your deals, uh, so I wonder about that. You know, and, and I, look, I'm sitting in, in 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 a chair where I'm constantly pretending to be an expert in every possible field there is. Um, but it is interesting to me that you did a you know you did a casino deal, you did what a, a quantum computing deal, uh, with a casino deal it had a, also an online um, uh, gambling uh, component to it. Then you did a quantum computing deal, um, uh, and, and what was your third one? No, the third one is, is Genius Sports. It was actually my second SPAC, and that's a sports betting data company. Um, right. So yeah, yeah. To, to break so it down related. to you, though, we, we, we actually have a lot of expertise, and here's why. Um, so Nicolo's done 20, you know 15 years of public gaming companies, so the casino deal is a gaming deal. The sports betting deal is gaming-related, but it's enterprise SaaS, and my partner, Harry, right, used to be the CFO of Accenture. EMC, Oracle, et cetera. So there's lots of experience there. The quantum right. computing deal is actually entirely, you know, uh, my, my genesis because I'm a physicist originally, as you may or may not know. So I've been following the quantum computing space since I was at Cambridge University studying this stuff, you know, 25 years ago. Um, and so combination of my expertise as a physicist and, and my partner Harry's expertise in the computing space, 
um, made us kind of the ideal partners to that, uh, believe it or not. So well, I, I, we agree with you, right? Like we, we haven't done EV car deals. We haven't done drone deals. We haven't done, right? Like we're sticking to stuff where Harry and I have an expertise, uh, you know, bias. And most of all, right. we're sticking to deals where the size of the business, the stage of the business, and that one to $3 billion kind of enterprise value zone is one where, you know, I've spent my entire career. I've done hundreds of earnings calls running public companies at that size. And I can really relate, as can my partner, Harry, with what it's like to be a CEO or CFO going through that private to public process. Right. That's really what right. differentiates us is we've been in the chair. There's a lot of SPAC sponsors. Frankly, I would look for SPAC sponsors who, who have never run a public company, Corey. That to me is the biggest the biggest tell. If you've not, you know, Harry and I have done 12 public companies between us a CEO, CFO, or a director, you know, if, if you, you're if looking you for the ones done, that aren't good, you look for the ones who haven't done yeah, it Yeah, we've never done public company, like bankers, like bankers never run anything. There's a bunch <laughs> of SPAC sponsors that are, you know, they've never run, never run a lemonade stand, right? Like if you're, if you're an investment banker, right? You're, you're, yeah. you're an agent, not a principal, right? And so if you've been an agent and not a principal and you've never had to go through a downgrade and upgrade, you know, cycles of actually operating public companies, I, I think those are the ones that are probably most likely to underperform, I would say, medium term and long term, and maybe even short term, because, you know, that first year of being public, it's really important to get it right. And if you've never yeah. taken a company public yourself, you don't know what you need to do to go from private to public in terms of setting guidance, inculcating the analyst community and making sure you're communicating, you know, properly at every step of the way. Interesting. So how have, maybe as a final question, how have your three completed transactions done? So two are completed, um, and they're right. both trading really well, right? So Genius Sports is, uh, you know, $17, and RSI is usually trading around $13, $14. Um, Above that initial $10 price, yep. That's right, that's right. And, and this is something that we pride ourselves on. You we should. price fair. We price fairly. And what I mean by fairly is if you, if you read about, you know, the FT says every time we, we do a deal, like we price fairly, our deals don't rocket up to $30 the way that, you know, Snowflake's IPO did or Unity's, you know, IPO did. We price fairly. So the target company is not leaving a lot of money on the table, but we're pricing enough so that there's a 15% discount for Fidelity to have a good experience and the company has a good experience. And so do we. And that, I mean, that's the key to long-term success and being greedy long-term is everyone's got to have a good experience every time. And then your third deal uh, is waiting on that shareholder vote to see if we will have a, a yeah. the one and only pure play in quantum computing trading on the public markets. You got it. I mean, it's trading around, I think, 1050, 1080, something like that, you know, so it's it's waiting for, you know, sort of the, uh, I think, the sort of uh, the news to start flowing out that will probably drive the analyst community to get excited about that. Um, but there's no doubt that we've picked a, a great moment for quantum computing because, you know, it's top of Chuck Schumer's agenda. It's top of Joe Biden's agenda. Um, it's strategically important to this country, right? Quantum computing is going to power, I think, fundamental science across every aspect uh, of applications in applied science, from drug discovery to material science to defense. This this country cannot lose the quantum computing war. It's certainly not something that's going to go well for us if China can crack all of our codes because they're ahead of us on that, right? So it's really important we're there. Um, well, I'm glad you're here on the podcast. We appreciate your support both for the Business Podcast Network and the drill down here in, in week one. Glad to have you on, Nicolo Damasi, the CEO of DMY Technologies. How can our listeners uh, follow you on social media. Oh, it's just at Nicolodimasi. That's the, the Twitter, the Twitter handle. So good to be here, Corey. Always a pleasure. Look forward to continuing the conversation. All right, man. I appreciate your support. Have a good day. 
Well, up next on the drill down, the bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. Okay, Ben, there have been 313 SPACs so far in 2021. So let's go back five years. How does that compare to 2016? How many SPACs were there in 2021? We'll tell you that right after this. But first, the drill down is brought to you by ERA, the equity platform with intelligent intelligence and insight for fundamental investors. Seamlessly connect to any earnings call, take advantage of ERA's AI-powered tools, work faster and smarter with ERA.com. And please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, and TuneIn. Please hit that subscribe button to catch every show. And remember to join the Drill Down on Twitter, Instagram, at DrillDownPod. I'm tweeting all day there, and you can also link up to us on LinkedIn. And sign up for our newsletter on our website, bizpod.net. Okay, Ben, there were 313 SPACs so far in 2021. So how many were there for all of 2016? Any guess? Uh, I'm imagining a lot less, but I don't know what my guess is. 313 this year and and four plus months. There were just 13 in 2016. Wow. Big change. Big change. All right. Well, thank you for listening to The Drill Down. I'm Corey Johnson. Ben Wilson is our engineer. Every weekday, we will take you behind the scenes and give you the business story behind Stocks on the Move. And of course, check us out on Twitter and Instagram at Drill Down Pod. (laughs) 